Up to that point, the 15-year-old teenage girl considered those other people to be friends. But one Saturday when she opened up her social media Instagram account and saw this picture, she knew that that wasn't necessarily the case. These four girls that she would have called her besties were on a beach trip without her. Arms locked around one another, big broad smiles as if they were having the time of their lives, which it seemed that they were. It's just that she wasn't included. And she couldn't help herself. Walking through image after image after image of these, her so-called friends on a trip where they had intentionally excluded her. And each one of those image felt like a little dagger to her soul. I imagine in your own life, in your own way, each and every person here knows the particular and unique sting of what it means to be excluded. That you weren't accepted into that group, that you weren't invited to be a part of that team, that you weren't included as a part of that table. And so today we want to talk about what it means to belong. And we've been contrasting by doing this over the last couple of weeks, the ways that community and relationships are formed in the world and the way that community forms in and through Jesus. Our primary image has been that of a table. We have been differentiating between the table of King Herod and the table of King Jesus And that we recognize that when you're at fellowship with and around Jesus, that these kinds of qualities are present, that there's trust, there's accountability, there's belonging, there's laughter, and there's encouragement. And today we talk about that unique acceptance of what it is like to belong. There's been a great deal of discussion um, in the media today about fake news. What we've been talking about here in the church are fake or faux forms of friendship. And so in the first week, we talked about transactional views of relationship on how we tend to view people as kind of using them, what they can do for us instead of just serving and loving them unconditionally. Then in our second week, we talked about shallow relationships and how many of us treat the people around us as kind of a mile wide and an inch deep. We don't let it go very far. Last week, we talked about the fake form of friendship known as therapeutic relationships, where we make sure that all the relationships that we have are really just a prop up to what our feelings and emotions are, that the goal of a relationship is just to make me feel good about ourselves, instead of actually dealing with the truth. And today we're talking about the fake friendship that's known as exclusivity. And so today, I want to invite us to go on a journey. And by doing that, I want to begin with what really, if you look at the Bible as a whole, Dallas Willard says is the goal of what God is doing in the world. And he says this, God's aim in human history is the creation of an inclusive community of loving persons with himself included as its primary sustainer and its most glorious inhabitant. Now, I know that that's kind of a lot of words, and Dallas Willard's a philosophy professor, so I want that definition to stay on the screen for a little bit as you kind of look at it and to to digest it. 
to think about God creating that kind of community, that love is at the center of that community, that God's at the core of that community, and that he dwells in the middle of it. And as you look at that definition, I want you to ask yourself, is that what your family is like? Does it reflect that definition? Does your workplace or your school look like that kind of inclusive and loving community? What about our churches? Are our churches like this? Well, it's a good thing that Jesus didn't just come to define or describe community. He came to create it. And so I want to ask you today to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you will. Turn for the one that you've brought with you. Love it if you bring your own Bible to worship so you can take notes in it. Um, But we've got ones that we've provided for you to use in your seats to be able to Uh, follow along, Luke chapter 19. And before we read this beautiful creation of what community can be like, I need to give you a little bit of backdrop, probably unfamiliar context, to what is a typically a very familiar person in story in the New Testament. Well, there was an area um, in the part of the Middle East that was known as being, the Bible calls it the City of the Palms. And what happened was that up in Jerusalem, when it would get cold in the winter, that people would migrate to this particular area in order to kind of escape the winter months and for there to be kind of a winter escape. Archaeologists have discovered um, elaborate palaces, kind of vacation homes, if you will, for people in this area. Um, If they built golf courses during the lifetime of Jesus, this is where they would have put them. Think of this as the Florida of the time of Jesus, okay? And the area that we're talking about is known as the area or the city of Jericho. And Jericho, the word actually means fragrant. And the reason that it means fragrant is that there were so many kind of luxuriant trees with so many great aromas that you couldn't help but walking through the streets in the area of Jericho and your nostrils would be filled with the sweet aroma of what that community was actually like. I want to show you an image up on the screen of the particular tree that's going to be kind of a part of today's story. This is known as a sycamore fig tree. In older translations of the Bible, it's often just called a sycamore tree, but the new NIV has helped us to update this because it's a particular kind of tree that's being described here, and it's important, and I want you to have an image for this tree because Jericho was the gateway to the people of God crossing the River Jordan and going into the promised land. Now, the promised land was said to be a land flowing with milk and what? Honey. Now, when we tend to think of honey today, we tend to think of honey in terms of kind of the sweetness that comes from a hive of bees. But the kind of honey that was known for God's people during the time in the life of Jesus was not kind of bee honey. It was the honey that was made from a syrup of a particular kind of fruit. Do you want to guess what kind of fruit it was? It was the fruit of a fig of a sycamore kind of tree. And so the land that was flowing with milk and honey, these are the kinds of trees that came to identify. This is important because once you start to understand this, the sycamore fig tree became kind of the primary symbol of the faithfulness of God of bringing his people home. 
And so Jesus is not being entirely random when he's walking along one day and he curses a fig tree. It wasn't like that Jesus was having a bad day and he decided to take it out on a random shrub. That's not what was going on. He curses a particular kind of tree. Do you want to guess what kind of tree it was? It was a sycamore fig tree. And in doing so, Jesus was basically burning the flag and causing an incredible controversy. It was the kind of thing that could get you killed. In fact, the thing that Jesus does right after that is to go into the temple and to turn over the the tables in anger. And so this tree is extremely important in its symbolism as Zacchaeus clambers up it. One other important detail before we read the text. According to the oral tradition of the rabbis, When Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 try to cover themselves in the shame of their sin in the Garden of Eden, according to the rabbinical tradition, the kind of things that they sew together to cover themselves are leaves of a sycamore fig tree. Are you starting to get the significance of this? Light bulbs starting to go off? And so now... Let's read God's word. Luke chapter 19, starting in the first verse. As Jesus entered Jericho, was passing through, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was vertically challenged, that's how we should translate it today, he could not see over the crowd. And so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today, Salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of whom? Abraham. That's going to be important later. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So you can almost imagine a a broad smile with all the layers of understanding and history of all the symbolism going on here that that Zacchaeus has tried to climb a sycamore fig tree and he's kind of peering through the very same leaves that Adam and Eve tried to hide in their own shame. You can almost just imagine Jesus kind of shaking his head and laughing and like, hey, Zacchaeus, get down here. I'm going to stay over at your house. In fact, I'm coming for a sleepover. You can imagine kind of the interesting joy in Jesus' heart as Zacchaeus came to peak, but Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus moves us from hiding in our sin and our shame to being restored into community. And you got to ask, how does Jesus do this? He goes through kind of three phases in this story. And phase number one is that Jesus sees him. In verse five, we discover that Jesus looks up, that he's paying attention. Now, Valentine's Day is coming up and I need to give out some Valentine's Day advice. Eugene Peterson says that the first task of love is to pay attention to notice. 
And so I don't want to catch any of you, any of my flock, out on Valentine's Day kind of celebrating and see you at a restaurant, both of you looking at your smartphones. What scholars say, being alone together is the norm. The first task of love, because we are living in an epidemic of alone together, a particular kind of loneliness, the first task of love is to notice, to look up, to pay attention, to call by name. Not that long ago, I was getting to spend some time with Jimmy Miato, who is the president of Compassion International, and he was talking about their extensive child um, kind of sponsorship program. And he, and he told me, he said, you know, the greatest benefit of the child sponsorship program is not the marshalling of resources. Probably the greatest impact of the child sponsorship program is that there are children all over the world that know that somebody notices them, that somebody sees them, that somebody knows that they're alive, somebody knows them by name. And so I want to put this image up on the screen and ask you, do you see this person? Do you see this person even though they don't live in the same kind of community and culture and reality that we live here in America? And I also want to ask you, do you see the people around you and your family, your friends, your schools, your workplaces? Do you actually notice the people that are all around us that are peeking, wanting to get close, but hiding behind the modern-day equivalent of a fig leaf, which is a smartphone. The first task of love is to pay attention. Jesus saw Zacchaeus. And then phase two of kind of restoring this type of community is that Jesus doesn't just see him and call him out. Jesus includes him. He welcomes him. I love the fact that Jesus doesn't invite him over to his house. He actually invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. He's kind of like, you know what? I think I'm coming over to your place for dinner. And the reason that that's significant is that Jesus all of a sudden began to identify with this man who was considered to be one of the most hated individuals in that culture. Tax collectors were in cahoots with the Roman occupying force and they were known to extort money from their own people for their own personal gain. And so you can imagine the grumbling, the murmuring, the hatred, the vitriol that was expressed against what was Jesus was doing here in identifying and connecting with Zacchaeus. I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says it this way. He says, it not, it's not just that anyone can come, but only anyone's can come. It's not just that even the unrespectable can find Jesus. In a certain sense, only the unrespectable can find Jesus. Only the ones who know they're in the same condition as everyone else. Not only can anyone come, but only those who know that they are absolutely no better than anyone's can come. 
This is the offensive thing that Jesus did all over the place. We call him Jesus meek and mild, but Jesus was constantly stepping on people's toes. Jesus offended the conservatives of his day because he hung out with people like sinners and prostitutes. Jesus offended the liberals of the day because he hung out with Roman-occupying soldiers and tax collectors. Jesus was an equal opportunity offender because he was bringing everyone together. Here's what I don't want you to miss out. The gospel is the only thing that brings together inclusive community because it is the only system by which people are included not on the basis of merit. It's all about grace. Every other system in the world, everything else that tries to pull people together in community, it's always about there are these prerequisites or requirements As Keller said, the unique thing about the gospel, only the anyone's can come because that's the nature of what the community of the gospel brings together. Yes, sometimes Christians warp the gospel to create in people and out people, but the true nature of the gospel is that anyone can come. It's scandalous. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said, all people matter to God. You matter, I matter, and it's the hardest thing in theology to believe. Earlier this week, on your behalf, I was down in Central America as we were visiting and getting to know some of our ministry partners. I want to introduce you to one of our ministry partners in Costa Rica. His name is Pastor Roy, and it is a good thing that we are mission partners and not wrestling opponents because he could take me in a heartbeat. (laughs) Pastor Roy has a remarkable community in the church that our um, high school students go down and help. We're standing in this image in one of the greenhouses that we help to fund, construct, and build. Uh, they have elaborate organic strawberry farms. Five years ago, this community was ravaged by an earthquake. At that point, there was about 12,000 people who had employment or jobs. After the earthquake, it went down to 2,000 people who had bona fide jobs because of the disaster in that area. And Pastor Roy and his community are doing a remarkable work of providing holistically in the name of the gospel for that community. It's a church that really does exist for its community. 60% of the community attends the church. Think about that. It's remarkable. Well, there's a great deal of tension in the country of Costa Rica between the Nicaraguans and the Costa Ricans. Um, They don't like each other very much. There's a lot more economic opportunity in Costa Rica and there is in Nicaragua. So there are people who are fleeing Nicaragua in order to seek um, jobs and a more secure way of life in Costa Rica. And because of the tension that exists between the races, the ethnicities, and the struggles between those two cultures, uh, sometimes they don't treat each other very well. Pastor Roy noticed that this was true in his community and he decided to do something about it. And so they hosted a dinner at the church where they invited the Nicaraguans of that community to come for a feast that they had prepared for the Nicaraguan community. No strings attached, just come for dinner. And when dinner time came in the middle of it, Pastor Roy got up And he said, 
Today, we wanted to confess to you that we know that as you've been a part of this community, sometimes you've been called names. Sometimes you've been on the wrong end of a bad joke. And we as a church just wanted to confess to you and to welcome you and to tell you that even though mostly Costa Ricans come to this church, you are welcome at this church because this is God's church and not ours. Can you imagine the work of reconciliation that started to happen in that community? In fact, one of the interesting side notes was that the Nicaraguans, some of their trade was in concrete art and the church was doing some construction not long after this and the Nicaraguans offered to come in and for free because of the way that they had been treated to do some of the concrete art on the walls of the chapel. I wanna put up an image on the screen here of some of the concrete arts. Imagine this, outsiders being invited to put together the art of the church. I also wanted you to see this image because this is Pastor Jay posing as an FBI agent. <laughs> and I felt very safe and secure as long as I had him at my side. Jesus saw Zacchaeus. Jesus included, even though it was scandalous, Zacchaeus. And finally, Jesus restored Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a name that means purity. And so Jesus is restoring the pureness of this man. And he does so by, and I told you this was gonna be important later, in verse nine saying, because this man too is a son of Abraham. Abraham, the bearer of the promise. Abraham, the one who was given the promise of there being a promised land to begin with. Abraham, who was told that he was gonna be blessed, but not just blessed for himself, but blessed to be a blessing for the whole world. Zacchaeus too is a son of Abraham. The other country we went down to this week was Guatemala. And one of our ministry partners in Guatemala is a community called Oasis. Guatemala is one of the most dangerous countries in the world when it comes to being a young girl. Found out this last week that only 6% of reported cases of sexual abuse against a minor actually gets a verdict of either guilty or innocent. Only 6% of reported cases get any kind of verdict at all. Oasis is a residential community. Let me show you some of the girls who live there. And the only thing that qualifies you to be a part of this community, about the 100 girls or so that are there at any given time, is that they have been abused. The pastor, Corby, and the leader who was there said that for a long time they kept doing everything that they knew to do to create a safe place, a sanctuary, to have caseworkers, to have psychologists, to have this complete 
all-out attack on the evil that had been done to these girls. And they saw a certain amount of success, a significant turnaround, but he knew that there was something missing, there was something incomplete, that you can teach them to think differently, you can teach them to behave differently, you can teach them to be able to deal with the trauma in their lives. But what really transforms this place into being something remarkable is demonstrated by a piece of art that's at the front of the room where the community of Oasis, these girls, they gather. And in case your Spanish is a little rusty, what it says up there is, I am chosen, I am clean, I am powerful, I am a child of God. That for the year or longer that these girls tend to be in a residential community, the most important thing that they work on is restoring their identity from the way that it was ripped away from them. Let me ask you, do you need a little bit of identity therapy today? Has somebody stolen part of your identity? You need to realize that God's aim in human history is the creation of an inclusive community of loving persons with himself included as its primary sustainer and its most glorious inhabitant. And the way that God does that is that God sees you, God invites and includes you, even in the scandal of our sin. And most of all, that God wants to restore your identity as a son, as a daughter of the promise. When people act today in most of our communities and churches, we act more like Zacchaeus than we do like Jesus. And we treat most of our communities as glorified tree houses, hiding in our shame, huddled together in exclusivity instead of being on the street in a reconciled community of Jesus. When people walk through the community of Peachtree, do they swell, smell the sweetness of the aroma of the promise of God? That promise of blessing to be a blessing where we create a safe place here and in our homes and in our workplaces for people to belong because it's all about grace. Let's pray. Our loving God and Father, we are so grateful that you have seen us, that you invite us, and that you restore us. Help us right now, O oh God, to understand the change in our identity, that we are chosen, we are clean, we are powerful, and most of all, we are sons and daughters of you. 
And like Zacchaeus, oh God, when we are changed in that way, we know that it will transform our whole lives. For Zacchaeus, it was, he went from extorting money, oh God, to becoming generous. And so God, will you change us as you meet us? And will you help us to now join you in your aim in the world? that we create that kind of loving community where all get to sit at your table. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.